Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. We have back with us today, Larry Bean. Welcome back, Larry. Thank you, Jason. Great to be back. It is good to have you. And I'm reading through this festschrift in honor of John Stevenson, Servant of Christ's Church, and you have one of the first essays entitled Early Christians of the 21st Century, revolving around what you say is uh, a man who is the most significant Christian writer of the 20th century that most people have never heard of. And you're talking about uh, Chad Walsh, who lived from 1914 to 1991. Now, why do you say that he is the most significant and yet never heard of? Well, I never heard of him, so I know why it's that we've never heard of him. But why is he the most significant? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, I do want to congratulate Dr. Stevenson on this fest shrift, on his retirement, his, his pivoting to a new, uh, a new paradigm of service in the kingdom. And what a great honor it is to, to have been able to write you know, in this fest shrift. And, to, and he's a fellow editor at Gottesdienst, and I, I think the world of him, and, I, and I'm so glad to see so many people uh, who, who showed him love and support and um, uh, not only as a, uh, an academic, but as a churchman, as a husband and father, as a Christian, as mm -hmm. a friend. And yeah. so uh, thank you, Dr. Stevenson, for your work thus far. And, and we look forward to many, many more years of service. So I wanted to write about Chad Walsh. He's a fascinating uh, character. Um, he, was, he was very popular in a time, in a different time and place in America, you know, uh, he wrote in the 40s and 50s mainly. Um, he did. He did live until the early 90s. His his life kind of tracks with the Soviet Union if you look at the, his birth and death dates. Uh, <laughs> but the last several years of his life, unfortunately, he suffered with dementia. He didn't really do a lot of writing. Uh, it would have been really interesting to get his take on on things, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s. But we don't have very much uh, mm -hmm. in that in that regard. But uh, Dr. Walsh was, he's really the guy who introduced America to C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. And it was really through a series of book reviews that he wrote in the Saturday Evening Post and other similar magazines that were hugely popular in that period in the 40s and 50s. It's, you know, it's a very different world we have. You know, we went through where television was dominant and now it's the internet and, and things like podcasts and things like um, YouTube and all of this. But in, in those days, it was the magazines and, and pe people from every walk of life read them. And so you had intellectuals, you had blue collar folks, you had, you know, uh, people with high school diplomas, people who were PhDs kind of were all um, uh, tapped into a similar par paradigm, a cultural paradigm. And what Walsh did was he brought C.S. Lewis to an American audience and opened up a whole world of, of, of this kind of apologetic and cultural writing, uh, mm -hmm. grounding the Christian worldview. 
And, uh, and so Walsh was really influential. In fact, um, he introduced C.S. Lewis to his wife, um, which, of course, was universe-changing for Lewis, and you know the trajectory of his writing, of course, took a different turn. And so um, Chad Walsh was—he was extremely influential, even as a young man, a young academician out of Beloit College um, in Wisconsin. And uh, and so, but nowadays, you know, o- almost nobody ever knows his name. He's kind of his name has kind of gone back into obscurity. Uh, but for a brief period of time there, everybody knew who Chad Walsh was because he was writing so in a in, in a popular outlet in a popular setting. Um, mm. Even even though he was kind of a you know he was an academician from a small liberal arts college, um, and an, and an ordained Episcopal priest, but his you know this this um, this career path that he took really made him uh, a, a household name in in that day. Mm-hmm. So why did you want to look at his writings outside of his introduction of Lewis to America? I mean, what was it about his perspective that piqued your interest? Well, mainly it was a book that uh, I took the, I gave the title of my essay, I'm I'm being a little pretentious, uh, Early Christians of the 21st Century. That was actually the title of his book written in 1949, which I think is just an a brilliant piece of writing, um, and uh, and and that's really what I wanted to focus on was this particular book, and it kind of it it comes out of a fascinating period in American history. Uh, he wrote this book in 1949, and of course, you know, they're on the cusp of 1950, of the second half of the 20th century, and writers are looking forward to the year 2000, like this mythical year when we're going to change millenniums, like what is the year 2000 going to be like? And, and, and so he's part of that genre of writing. Um, that genre of writing includes, um, it, it includes both this super positive, uh, optimistic, utopian writing, as well as a lot of dystopia as people look forward to the year 2000. Um, think about 1949, or think about the late, you know, the, the, the late 1940s, the world had just been through World War II, which was really a continuation of World War I. And World War I saw the close of the age of the monarchies and the old sort of imperial existence of the world and a change to a new society of republics and, and, and democracies and the hegemony of the United States, a complete change in the politics of the world. Uh, we saw the um, the defeat of fascism. We saw the rise of uh, of totalitarian communism, um, especially after World War II, with the Soviet Union being allied to the United States. But we, you know, from a literary standpoint, think about what was going on at this point. We had um, uh, George Orwell wrote Animal Farm in 1945. He wrote um, 1984 in mm-hmm. 1948. We had Lewis's The Abolition of Man, which is a, a, a brilliant, brilliant book, which came out in 1947, which hits on some of the same themes as Early Christians of the 21st Century by Walsh. Um, and, and what's going on in the world? Again, the end of World War II, we had the rise of the UN in 1945, the birth of the State of Israel in 1948, which really changed uh, the geopolitical 
um, uh, form of the world. We have the the um, the Cold War is heating up, uh, and people are living in total fear of nuclear annihilation at this time. So it's a real bizarre kind of change. You know, everyone senses there's change in the air and everybody's mm-hmm. trying to figure out, okay, where are we going? We're a half century from the year 2000 and where are things going? And, 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 and within this whole thing, you have Chad Walsh, who is in many ways an enigma. He, he's a liberal, but he's a conservative at the same time. You know, he's, he is prescient in, in, in correctly seeing what's coming down the pipe, but he's also really naive in a lot of ways. So it's, it's just fascinating. And, and, and the book, Early Christians of the 21st Century, I would encourage anyone to read it. It's not a long work. Um, it touches upon you know, high points of, of art and culture and politics and economics, and, um, but it's, it's, it's not a profound, deep read. But it, it, but it's very, it, it's a really, uh, it's a great sort of finger on the pulse of where we were just before the Second Vatican Council, just before the youth culture and rock and roll and the, and the the coming of the birth control pill, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's just sits right there in a time and place that is just so crucial, and and the world can go in any number of directions and. And and so the, the the book is out of print. It's hard to find. It's expensive, uh, but you know people can get it through interlibrary loan, uh, and or, or you know you can find copies of it. But I encourage people to give it a look and to uh, and other other books by Chad Walsh. Other uh, he he wrote a lot for a popular audience. Uh, a lot of really good Christian apologetics in the tradition of C.S. Lewis, in the tradition of G.K. Chesterton and Dorothy Sayers, um, whom he references often in his works. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of I was fascinated by uh, Walsh and in particular by this book and I, and this and and Dr. Stevenson's festschrift kind of gave me an opportunity to to finally kind of pull the threads together and write uh, a mm-hmm. paper on Walsh yeah. and on this book. So turning to that book, then what does Walsh see? I mean, so what kind of diagnostic can we give of the time then and what? Walsh is experiencing, and then from that perspective, what does he see is coming in the year two thousand? Yeah, um, the his most brilliant observations had to do with his perspective as a professor of literature, as a literary critic, um, and as an artist himself. He was a poet himself, and and so by looking at the arts, by looking at literature, by sort of gauging the the feel of the culture as it was going through a lot of change he kind of saw a trajectory happening and his his trajectory he really did f- see what was coming in terms of postmodernism and it's interesting because the word postmodern was a newly coined word i think in like 1946 or 47 you can look up the etymology um and it it kind of moves into the popular realm of literature about this time. And, and so um, he sees this coming deconstruction in what words mean, in language. He sees sort of the, the rules of poetry being thrown out in favor of free verse. And just, he sees the, the sort of the coming um, destruction of, of Christian morality. Mm. Um, and, and he kind of, you know, he, he kind of hints at 
by, especially by the title, that the 21st century would be very much like the first century that the church lived in um, because of sort of the, the change in the way the church is received by the world and the change in the way that words are perceived to mean. And, um, and so, you know, his, his sort of conclusion is we could go one of two directions. We could, the church could just sort of fizzle out in importance, or the church could become vibrant and re, uh, re-energized to take on the world. And, um, and so, you know, some of his conclusions are a little goofy, but some of his conclusions are spot on. But what's really spot on, I thought, was his, um, his pro- projection of kind of a nihilism, a linguistic nihilism, of deconstructionism, of the idea that words don't have meanings anymore. And, you know, he certainly would have never foreseen coming where we can't even define what a man and a woman is. Mm-hmm. Um, he, was, he was very conservative in terms of family life, in terms of, you know, uh, the idea that we should have big families and we shouldn't have birth control and, and, and all of that. Um, but at the same time, you know, he embraced a lot of the cultural liberalism that led to the downfall of, of family life and, 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 uh, and its place in, in human flourishing. And, and on that topic, I just want to throw out something that I don't want to forget. I just saw a great presentation by our own Dr. John Bombaro, uh, Missouri Synod uh, pastor, PhD. And uh, he wrote or he uh, gave a presentation at Luther Classical College called uh, God's Domain for Human Flourishing, in which he takes up this very topic um, of, of uh, he, mainly kind of looking at C.S. Lewis's um, uh, book, uh, The Abolition of Man, which which is coterminous, you know, in, in contemporary with uh, Chad Walsh, yeah. and you know, and and it's it 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 tracks along these same lines. But Walsh was seeing this stuff, you know, 70, 80 years ago uh, on the heels of World War II, and that's what really what I found so fascinating by the book, and and it is it really is, you know, because I teach 1984, I teach Animal Farm. Uh, to my high school kids, and I found Orwell not only in his um, not only in his fiction, but but in his nonfiction works, um, he wrote a fantastic essay about the politicization of the English language, and and this was you know all of this stuff was in its infancy at the time, and and uh, you know intelligent um, uh, thinkers, uh, philosophers. Uh, people who had their finger on the pulse of the arts could see where this was headed, and, and I'm just fascinated by that foresight that that men like Lewis and men like Walsh uh, had in in sort of projecting what was coming culturally. Now, wh- what do they mean by the politi- politicization of language? Do they mean it in terms of like it being used as like oppressor and oppress? those oppressed or how did, how did, how did they view that? Well, in, in particular in, with Orwell, he saw, uh, the, the, he saw like, for instance, um, the powers that be, you know, those who, who have power in society, um, you know, totalitarian, a totalitarian dictator, for instance, mm-hmm. um, in our time, it's a little different. We, we do have kind of a soft totalitarianism, through the media, through academia, through popular culture. 
But the people who sort of control the narrative, they weaponize language. They change the meaning of words. Um, they, 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 you know, mandate the use of certain languages, like a certain language, certain words. Um, Orwell invented the idea of newspeak and you know, sort of a permissible dictionary or lexicon of how you could use certain words and how you weren't allowed to use other words. And we certainly see this. It, we used to call it political correctness. Now we call it wokeness. And, uh, you know, pronoun policing and, um, you know, being removed from the public square if you express uh, a forbidden opinion or you use a forbidden word. And the rapidity with which words that are favorable and acceptable then become unacceptable and taboo, um, it keeps us on our toes all the time. We never know what word we're allowed to use at any given time. And this was done in the Soviet Union, um, especially under Stalin. Um, people lived in absolute fear of the knock in the, of the, on the door in the middle of the night because, you know, a joke that you told that was acceptable three years ago, somebody wrote it down, and then now all of a sudden it's retroactively um, considered uh, forbidden, and then you go to a gulag for uh, seven years. We, we have this sort of same kind of thing happening today. You know, people post something on social media that was acceptable uh, 10 years ago, maybe they were even a teenager, a person was a teenager at the time, and now all of a sudden, um, it's been discovered and he's on the stools of repentance. He's going through a struggle session. He's losing his job. He's losing his, you know, he's being unpersoned. And yeah. that weaponization of language, um, the, the idea that words are fluid in their meaning or that they can be defined by uh, a subjective rather than an objective view of reality, uh, this is a very dangerous idea. It's a Luciferian idea. It's an evil idea. It's an idea that leads to concentration camps and shallow graves and 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 uh, and fear. And we're certainly seeing it in a different kind of way than what people were sort of like people like Orwell were looking forward to in the nineteen you know nineteen forties. We we don't live in at at least at this point we don't live in a hard totalitarian society. But we have, we still have cultural and social and, um, you know, strictures um, that, uh, that I think Chad Walsh pointed out and, and others like him at that time kind of pointed out would be enforced in a, in a different sort of way, in a cultural sort of way by controlling the arts, by controlling the sciences, by controlling the narrative of, 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 of the, of public, uh, of, of the, of, of reporting, of simply reporting, of telling the story or, you know, telling what's happening in the world, uh, that's being controlled. And, and we see, uh, the church being caught, you know, within that the church is being lorded over by, by forces that are hostile to Jesus, to the church, to Christian morality. Okay. So he saw this with respect to the arts, you said. Yes. Um, mainly literature, poetry. Um, he talks about modern music and, and it's kind of, it, this is one area where I think he's a little out of touch. Um, he, you know, his view of modern music is sort of, you know, 20th century classical piano composition. You know, meanwhile, from the 1920s through the World War II era, you had this, you know, this, this sort of youth culture of popular music, of jazz, of, of, of bebop. 
of what became and you know blues, what came and morphed into rock and roll. You know, he's he's writing on the cusp of of Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly and and then the and then coming along the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and 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 the radical way that you know rock and roll music becomes what poetry used to be. It's it's sort of the the popular imagery of of language of lyrical writing and it takes a a very different turn. Um, you know, Walsh kind of foresaw. Um, music becoming degraded, but I don't think he saw the rapidity with which it would, it really would degrade. I mean, to the point now where, you know, and, and even in the last 20 years, um, rap is king and, and rap lyrics are openly vulgar and uh, truly misogynistic and truly racist and truly violent and nihilistic. Mm-hmm. Um, Chad Walsh didn't really see that trajectory coming. I mean, he kind of, he hinted at it, but I don't think, I mean, I mean of course you're, you know, you're projecting the future who, you know, how do you even predict where this is going? Um, but it was, it, it was like worse than what he even projected. And, and now we're seeing, you know, a degradation of the arts. Uh, people call it performance art where you have, public nudity and sexual spectacle even in front of children and 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 you know the 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 degeneracy and parades and uh and 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 it's just horrific and it it is very much like the early like like the first century when the the greco-roman world had the pagan world had control of things like the theater and things like the blood sports and things like the popular imagination and the arts and the early Christians were living and breathing in that horrible idolatry and debauchery. And so I, th- I think in that sense, uh, Chad Walsh, even though he really kind of, kind of was out of touch in terms of what, where the popular sentiment was in terms of the arts, he, he still saw a trajectory of degeneracy um, that was even worse than what I think he, he kind of projected in his mind's eye. Okay. So what is what is he what what else does he see coming down the pike? Well, I, I think it's really interesting because he's a big critic of progressivism. Mm-hmm. And he rightly, you know, he rightly um diagnoses the problem with progressivism. A pro- progressivism denies original sin. It denies the reality of fallen man. And mm-hmm. and Chad Walsh is really at his best when he you know, he sort of recounts a Lewisian vision of Christian apologetics, of orthodox Christian theology, of the, the consequences of the fall, and the real meaning behind the incarnation and the atonement, and this clash between, you know, the, the world and, and, and Christ coming to redeem the world. He is extremely orthodox on all of these things. And therefore, he's a great critic of progressivism. Um, he criticizes Darwinism and, and completely opposes it. Um, he criticizes the sort of liberal view of family life that was emerging at the time. Um, he, he uses the term secular optimism and then takes aim at it. So there, you know, there's this, uh, he has that all of that going for him. But then at the same time, you know, he's an enigmatic 
character to me. I, I mean, I wish I wish he were around so I could interview him because at the same time, while he's upholding Orthodox Christian doctrine, he is against a sort of quote unquote fundamentalist reading of the Bible. Um, he believes in the higher critical method. Um, he he's against Darwinism, but he believes in evolution. Um, you know, he's against sort of the the liberal progressivism, and and uh, and he's a, he's a, an opponent of communism. He takes aim at communism, but he also doesn't like uh, capitalism, and he kind of he kind of posits a via media kind of a socialism. He's a he's in favor of socialism, and he's in favor of world government. You know, <laughs> I mean, what could be more naive uh, in terms of original sin uh, than to say, let's just hand over the the governance of the entire world to a small group of people in Geneva and let them run everything? Um, but but again, you know, I guess a certain to a certain extent, he can be forgiven because people in the late '40s were living in abject fear of the bomb. They had just seen Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Um, they, you know, they 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 knew the Russians had the bomb. They knew the Americans had the bomb, and they saw this arms race coming and this ideological battle. And and you know, people at the time, they you know, they 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 woke up in the morning thinking of mushroom clouds and how are we going to stop this? And their their only solution was, well, we have to have some some world policing. We have to have world courts. We have to have a world state. Um, and the UN was born in 1945. So, you know, he kind of got on that bandwagon and, and in a naive way, not seeing how really evil um, this this kind of, you know, I mean, we we live in the in the in the uh, in the time of a uh, Klaus Schwab in mm. the era of the Great Reset, in the area in the era of transhumanism, where they're literally talking about implanting chips in us. Allah, the book of Revelation, you know, but Chad Walsh couldn't, he couldn't see all of that coming. So in spite of his, he wrote brilliant stuff against progressivism, but was just sort of, you know, I, I I think it was just sort of the world that everybody, it was like the, the fish were swimming in the water and couldn't see the water because that was their, where they lived. (laughs) And so, you know, we have this benefit of, of, uh, of 2020 hindsight, we can see Chad Walsh's blind spots, and it's it's just fascinating, because as um, um, as uh, uh, Father David Peterson is wont to point out, I'm sure he's talked about this with you on the Godestines crowd many times. What are our blind spots? You know, we yeah. um, uh, what's going to happen um, when we look 50 years down the road? And the things that we're projecting, things we're talking about now, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe a um, a Godestinst uh, uh, a Godestinst editor and a Godestinst you know podcaster. Who knows? Maybe they'll have holograms and stuff. Then maybe they will play this very recording and kind of laugh at how naive Broughton and Bean were, and and, you know, <laughs> and, and how yeah. could these guys have their own blind spots? Yeah. But what you did know, we is, not see? Yeah, what are our what are the Nazis that that we have, you know, <laughs> in in our uh, in our time? Um, but it is, you know, it. But by the same token, we can look at the arts and we can look at the culture. We can look. We have a lot more of it going on. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, it was we had three TV channels and they all went off the air at two in the morning. 
and some people still had black and white TVs. But now we have this these massive screens the size of your wall in high definition 24/7 streaming mm-hmm. in every imaginable kind of filth you can you can even conceive of and it's normalized yeah. and uh, and and we can you know as christians we know what this is going to mean but you know will there be a backlash will luther classical college and you know our our confessional lutherans in the missouri synod and our brothers and sisters in Christ all across Christendom, will, will there be a pushback? Will there be a counterinsurgency that will bring back this Lewisian orthodoxy, this G.K. Chestertonian you know, uh, triumph of the, of the beautiful uh, Christian paradoxes? Will, mm. will Chad Walsh be vindicated for you know, his projection of a reinvigorated church of the 21st century. Um, yeah. we, we won't know. Uh, we'll, we'll be uh, with Jesus long before any of this happens. And hopefully it won't, you know, hopefully our Lord will just come back and just put us all out of our misery and we'll have eternity. But uh, that's certainly not up to us, is it, Jason? It is not. It is not. So you brought up the fact that, as Peterson says, you know, what are the things that we don't see? What are the things that we have as our own blind spots. And I had just actually talked with Peterson uh, today about, um, you know, do we need our a new kind of, perhaps not to add it to our Book of Concord, but do we need to sit down and write our own formula for our age? And if we did, what would those articles be? What would be the things that we have to elaborate on for our time and our place and put forward, this is what we believe teaching and fest, and this is what we condemn? That is a very, very good question. Um, I think it was Professor Marquardt was suggesting that very thing some 20 or 30 years ago. Um, From a practical standpoint, I'm kind of against it um, because I think I don't. I think Lutheranism around the world is so shattered at this point. I don't even think we could get all the conservatives to agree to a single document, let alone you know mm-hmm. all all Lutherans. So I, I think maybe a better approach, rather than trying to create a new uh, confessional document and trying to get it ratified, I, I, I think a better approach might be to just to continue to have dialogue about Jesus, about the church, about the faith, about the confessional uh, realities that we have now. And I I do think we need a healthy ecumenism. And I want to be very clear about what I mean by that. I don't mean willy-nilly, you know, going into fellowship with churches that don't confess the same thing that we confess. But I have to say, I I just had a a lovely visit from an an Anglican, Anglican Catholic Church bishop uh, we became fast friends. His name is uh, Bishop Paul Hewitt. And, you know, he is of the Anglican tradition, but he recognizes how important the Missouri Synod is and the and conservative world Lutheranism is to the preservation of the church Catholic. And, and so he is, he's trying to draw together, he's trying to do the same sort of thing within Anglicanism, within the continuing Anglicanism, not the Canterbury Anglicanism, it's lost, but the groups of Anglicans who left Canterbury 
because they believe in the Bible and because they believe in the confessions of the church and the, and the creeds, and they don't ordain women and they don't uh, marry homosexuals and so forth. And he's going around and, 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 and he and, and, and a group of other Anglicans are trying to draw all these disparate groups together. But he's also looking outside of Anglicanism to, 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 to make connections with Presbyterians and Lutherans and, you know, even Methodists and uh, other Protestant groups, other, other sort of disparate uh, dissidents within Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, mm-hmm. because our, our church is, the, the church Catholic is under attack by the devil. And so I think, um, I think what we need to do is really double down on what we confess as Lutherans, and especially in terms of our historic confessions and creeds. We need to really, really re-emphasize and re-catechize our people in the small catechism, but also in the, in the Apostles' Nicene and um, um, Athanasian creeds. I think we really, really need to do a better job of teaching the Augsburg Confession, the backbone of our confession to our people. I think we need to do that before we can even begin to consider coming up with some kind of new confessional document. But, and I also think we have a lot to offer the church Catholic in our, within our tradition of holding fast to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. I think we also need to be upfront and address the incursion, the invasion of woke ideology within the Missouri Synod and within other confessional, uh, liturgical, uh, traditional um, um, branches of, of the Lutheran confession. And I think we need to aggressively get rid of them. I think we need to go after them and, and we need to quit pussyfooting around. Um, this is, uh, you know, there are, uh, I just ran across an RSO of synod that has, that's promoting homosexuality. There, there is no room for this. It needs to be done yesterday. Uh, we need to clean house and we need to recommit ourselves, repent, of, of dallying with this left-wing uh, ideology and get rid of it. And, and, and then we need to be able to reach out to other, uh, other Christians, not necessarily to go into communion, but, but, to, but to, to have strength in numbers to push back against this deviant Luciferian culture. I think mm-hmm. that's what we need to do. And, and exactly what that looks like, I don't know. 50 years from now, what does that look like? I don't know. But I do know we have to cling to what we have what what we what is kind of slipping away from our fingers? We need to reach out, and we need to be aggressive and go back and recapture uh, our uh, our doctrinal purity and our liturgical integrity, because that's what connects us to the past. Um, this is one area where I did want to bring up where Chad Walsh I think dropped the ball, and I I, I hope that we can um, move in a in a better direction. Um, he was very traditional in terms of uh, doctrine, but he foresaw um, he was not traditional in terms of liturgy. Like he wanted to redo Christian art to have modernism in our stained glass windows, you know, to have illustrations of Jesus wearing, you know, pants and shirts of the 21st century and, you know, have. <laughs> Hymns that have that celebrate drill presses and you know uh, people working in the fields and you know it just sort of this he he really thought that the idea of the church being relevant was to get away from our medieval past and from our early church past and to move into you know sort of take charge of of modernism and 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 I think 
I think he didn't realize what a, a, a poison pill modernism is. What we are seeing now, and I'm, I'm encouraged by this, young people, Generation Z, you know, I, I teach high school kids. I'm around high school kids and, and university age uh, young people a lot in my vocations that I have as a pastor, as a teacher, as a chaplain in Civil Air Patrol. And I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing. These young people, they want to get married young. They want to have children, have big families. The, the young women, I find the young women, they're, they're pushing back against the feminism they were raised in. They want to stay home and raise children, you know, and the, and the, and the, and the young men. They are crying out for male role models who will teach them how to be men. You know, it's, it's like the, the Chad memes are coming <laughs> to life among our young people, our young Lutheran men. They need to be fostered, right? They need to be mentored. They don't need to be scolded by a bunch of effeminized boomer men. They don't need to be lectured to. By, by women theologians. What they need, they need our men to man up, to be men, to, to lead the church from the front. And, and they're crying out for this. And to me, this is a golden opportunity like we have not had since the 60s. You know, the, 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 degeneracy, the degeneracy of the 1960s and the youth culture and, and, and just, it's been a juggernaut. Of, of homosexuality and feminism and deviancy and push and, and, and criticism, uh, anti-traditionalism. These young people, they want the liturgy. They want, they want a Godestine's congregation that they can go to. And, mm -hmm. and they're just, they're, it's, it's like a full blown revolt. And, and we need to like it, you know, the spark is there and the flame it's being enkindled. And, and what we need to do is stop, playing around and, and, and inviting the modernism of the world and, and, and playing the left's game and dancing to their tune. And what we need to do is focus on these young men and women and raise them as an army of Christians. And it's happening not just in Lutheranism, it's happening in Anglicanism. It's happening in, even in Roman Catholicism among the traditional sort of wing. And, and you know, Look, I could be wrong about all of this, just like Chad Walsh was wrong, but I really see this as the hope for the church's future. It's with the young people. They are, um, they are very, very conservative, but they, they do need direction because their conservatism could go off in a, in a different direction. Um, they, they, need to, they need a firm grounding catechetically in the Bible and in the confessions, in the creeds and confessions of the church, and they need social and uh, um, uh, sort of, um, how can I say it? Uh, it's, it's, it's a, they need a social conservatism, a, a, a cultural kind of conservative, not just conservatism, but a, a traditional, holistic, creation-based view of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a mother, a father, a child, and what it means to be a child of God and a, 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 a faithful layperson in the church and we need to raise up uh, real men of the prophetic voice who aren't afraid to be men in the pulpit. That, I mean, I, I really am I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing, but I know they have a tough, tough road ahead. Yeah, it, it is. Um, I, I think particularly for our men, uh, for men in general, we, we live in an anti-male society. 
that's always putting down not only men, but uh, Christian men, and then second to that, white Christian men. Right? So all the BLM stuff is just anti-white stuff. And um, there, there has to be a way to foster a, you know, a regaining of the, the soul for the men in our pews who tend to be Christian, male, and white, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's become a bad word uh, that, we're, uh, that we have so many white people in our church body. But, I mean, look, this is where we live in our slice of Christendom. Yeah. Um, we have faithful Lutherans in, um, in, in Kenya, for instance. I say Kenya because it is such a big, vast church body, and there's, they're, you know, they're Orthodox Lutherans there. Their slice of the world and of Christendom looks different than ours does. But, you know, look, they are faithful Lutheran Christians, and they are uh, much more faithful at rejecting these cultural shibboleths, you know, especially in terms of sexuality, than we are in our paradigm. So the fact that they belong to a certain demographic order that God gave them, that is nothing for them to be ashamed of. It's nothing for them to see as something they need to repent of. Their lack of diversity is not sinful. And the same is true for us. We are uh, largely a, uh, a, a white people because our, our forebears came from Europe. They uh, largely Scandinavia and Germany. I mean, that's just where we come from. We, yes, we do reach out to all peoples in America, but I mean, you know, uh, for instance, uh, black people are 13% of the population. That's, I mean, that's barely above double digits. Um, we still have a large majority of white folks and they're being told they're evil. They're being told whiteness is a, uh, a pathology. This mm-hmm. is horrible. And young people are kind of growing up uh, with this and, and it's just wrong. You know, it's wrong for, uh, for black people to be told that you're, you're less of a person because of your race. It's wrong for white people to be told. And, and, and really what, and, and, and we have, we have mainstream voices in our Missouri Synod that are criticizing us and saying that this is prima facie evidence of racism just because of who we are collectively in terms of our ethnic uh, makeup. And, I, and again, we need to fight back against that. We need our leadership to show leadership and to say, no, um, we, this, is, this is unchristian. It is, it's wrong to, to denigrate people based on their ethnicity, just who they are. Because you know who we are? We are baptized children of God, regardless of our flesh tone. And that goes even for the undesirable untouchables, which in our context means white people. All right. right. So we, we do. We need to uh, reinvigorate our identity as baptized children of God, because we're losing that in all of this nonsense over, um, well, I identify as a, um, a furry person of color with, uh, with a neuro, neurodivergency, you know, blah, blah, blah. We need to just come right out and say, that's evil. That's Luciferian. We're not playing along with it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we're not going to denigrate any ethnicity of en- or anybody. And you know what? If you want to be part of our, uh, our synod, you want to be part of our uh, tradition, everybody's welcome. 
you know, we don't, we don't care about what ethnicity you are. And we're not going to play along with the world's denigration of, um, uh, especially of whites, of conservatives, of Christians. I mean, uh, and look at how we shoot ourselves in the foot by, hmm. uh, you know, cozying up, uh, cuddling up next to people who really, let's be blunt about it. If these people had their way, we would be in concentration camps. And, right. you know, I think that is a lesson of that, that Chad Walsh and people of the late 40s, you know, they lived in the shadow of concentration camps. That's what, that's what Luciferianism leads to. It is anti-human. And what, what the heck are we seeing in our own day and age? But the fulfillment of this with this transhumanism, with euthanasia, with uh, abortion, and so, I, I, you know, I, I really think what we need to do is to double down on all of these things and, and to root ourselves in baptism, in the Bible, and in our confessions, and then, um, and then see where it goes from there. Uh, we may build some wonderful bridges across boundary lines in Christendom, and, you know, I don't know where that will lead. Well, one thing that he does give a prognosis of is, at the end of your essay— he wrote, its ministers and members, that is, of the church, may be thought queer. I take that to mean strange. Some of them may be martyred. Stones may be hurled at stained glass windows. The church itself may be suppressed by formal decree. But it will rise again on the third day, stronger and with deepened dedication. So is he right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, there is an underlying uh, sort of a, a, a possibility of, of 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 great horrific evil and persecution, um, and at the end of the day, you know, he's relying on the fact of he's he's relying on the resurrection uh, to point us to the church's triumph, and I think he is right in in the eternal eschatological significance. In fact, I know he's right in that sense. And you know what, regardless of which direction things go in this fallen world, whether there is sort of a quote unquote revival of classical Christianity, or whether we see the church being just sort of almost rubbed off of the face of the earth to where we're nothing but a few fugitives and refugees and, uh, and a tiny remnant, um, regardless of which way it goes, we we must keep the eschatological vision, the triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the and the ironclad hope of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting central. And that is the good news we have for the world, whether the world wants it, whether the world hates it. Uh, to men who like or like it not, in season and out of season, and you know. Uh, with with the normal flow of the seasons, you you kind of know what's coming. You know that uh, fall is coming after summer, and you know that winter's coming after fall. But in terms of uh, society and culture and the the politics of the world, you know we can make predictions, we can make projections, we can look at the trajectory of art. But at the end of the day, we don't know what is going to happen specifically in the future of our fallen world. But we do know what's going to happen in our eternal future. And, and I think that provides a sense of hope and a sense of vision, a sense of purpose, 
um, that that we what we are called to do. We are called to worship our Lord, and we are called to proclaim the good news, and to uh, you know to receive His gifts, uh, to confess Him, and at the end of the day, we live and die uh, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's already won the victory for us. Amen. Well, thank you, thank you for this essay. Uh, really pleased to see so many of Godestine's guys supporting. John Stevenson in this Festrift, Servant of Christ Church. So many good essays in there. I really uh, commend this to our listeners to pick it up if they haven't already. And I particularly enjoyed learning about Chad Walsh. So thank you for that, Larry, and thank you for your time. Well, you're very welcome, Jason, and thank you for uh, this interview, and thank you for, um, uh, the, for all you do for us, and uh, we appreciate it.